It reminds me of a day, actually my fourth grade year. It was an absolutely perfect day. Um, the Massachusetts winter had finally subsided, which meant six or seven months of snow, sleet, freezing rain, and any type of precipitation that you can think of had finally ceased. The sun was shining through, and that meant that as a fourth grader in Miss Eleanor Brown's class, I could think of nothing better than to have a chance uh, to go outside. But ironically, that day, we were deprived of a recess because we were unruly, we were impatient, we were looking to go outside the entire day, and ironically kept from just that because our behavior didn't merit it. Um, but on that day, I was so distracted by the view outside the window that I couldn't focus on the endless multiplication tables or the phonics exercises. All I could do was think about how great it would be to go outside. So I surveyed the classroom and looked around me, and my classmates had the same dilemma. And finally, the words that we had been waiting to hear were offered by Mrs. Brown. This is not working. Let's go outside. Finally. So we had a chance uh, to go outside. We filed single file right away. And she made it clear that we were going outside under the condition that we had to come in as soon as she blew the whistle. It was getting late in the afternoon, close to the time for dismissal. And at that point, I would have done anything short of selling my soul to go outside. So we, we all agreed, and we, uh, we headed outside. Now that day, the game of choice uh, was kickball. And for anybody who's played middle school kickball, you know that it can get extremely competitive very quickly. Uh, it was one of those games that you see in storybook fairy tale endings. After 25 or 30 minutes, it's the classic bottom of the ninth scenario. My team is pitching. We're up by one run. There are two outs. The bases are loaded. And my friend, my best friend actually at the time, Danny Cerrone, was at the plate. He was one of their best kickers, and I knew uh, that, that the very next pitch would decide the fate of the game. If we had gotten an out, then our team would have been victorious, and I could have fulfilled the visions we had of riding off into the sunset back into our fourth-grade classroom with a victory on our shoulders. However, if he did get a hit, we knew that it would be strong enough to score at least two runs, and we'd lose the game. So you understand what's at stake, and as I wound up to throw the final pitch... The dreaded sound of Mrs. Brown's whistle blew. So at that point, we had two options. One was to heed the whistle and uh, forsake the game and go inside at the risk of possibly forever arguing what the outcome would be. Or we had the chance to disregard, if only for a moment, the whistle and to conclude the game. Uh, by a show of hands, anybody, anybody know <laughs> what we decided? Who's going with option A to follow the teacher? All right, you know, you know us well. All right. <laughs> so we disregarded the sound of Mrs. Brown's whistle, and I wound up with a smirk on my face and a shared glance with Danny to throw the final pitch. Now, with all the emphasis that I placed on that game at that very moment, it's surprising to say that I still don't remember the outcome of the game. But I will forever remember the moments that followed. As soon as the game concluded, we, we ran inside back into our fourth grade classroom to join the rest of our classmates that had been obedient to the whistle. And Mrs. Brown, with a scowl on her face and her arms crossed in the center of the classroom, asked us to take our seats because she had prepared a speech for us. She looked at us and said, Boys, you know very well that what you just did was a sin. 
She said, you know that sin separates you from God, and ultimately, if you have sin in your life, you won't go to heaven. It was a threat. It was, it was an attempt to scare us, and it worked. And she, she posed a question. She said, let me ask you something, boys. Is three extra minutes of recess worth your eternity? <laughs> Call it a legalistic East Coast view of the kingdom of God, but that shook my foundation to the very core, and it's something that stayed with me for many, many years and, and shattered my young view of a loving Heavenly Father. Um, years later, when I graduated high school, I decided to come down to, to Riverside to study at La Sierra University. Um, and as you all, I'm sure, are familiar with, I was exposed to a lot of, of different information. But even before my first day of class at La Sierra, I was listening to a, a radio broadcast on the local Christian station KSGN. And it was uh, an evangelist named Steve Brown was speaking, kind of promoting his new book. And the book was entitled Three Free Sins. And ironically, though his name is Brown, just as my fourth grade teacher, their theologies couldn't be any different. You see, in Steve Brown's mind, Christ has already saved us. He's already made the atoning sacrifice. And he takes it a step further. He says, we can ultimately do anything that we want. Our, our salvation is already sealed. There's no need to show appreciation. This life can be a party, and it should be because we know at the end of the day that we're going to be saved. So these are totally opposite ends of what seems to be an ever-expanding spectrum of, of who is God. Who is God in our lives? And it's, we are constantly bombarded with these different pictures of God with these different pictures of God. And, and we, we are quick to, to jump to the conclusion, how long can we hear these conflicting and inconsistent views of God before we ourselves start believing that God is inconsistent? Is God inconsistent? That's the question that we're dealing with today. Let me take you to John chapter 14. It's Jesus' last day on earth, and he's, he's holding a very intentional conversation with his disciples you see, Christ knows the fate of the upcoming days. He's well aware of the trial that bewaits him. He's well aware of the crucifixion. And most importantly, he knows that he's going to spend a day in the tomb in which the disciples will not have anyone to go to for a spiritual perspective. So Christ uses this time to, to emphasize the importance and to emphasize the peace that these disciples should incorporate in their lives. It's a, it's a peace described as one that passes understanding and praise God because the disciples were anything but understanding. So any peace could have, could have passed their understanding. But Christ offers them some very, very reassuring words. You're all familiar with the kind of the staple statement of Christianity. It says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is a profound sermonette by Jesus, and he seems content to go on and answer all the dilemmas that the apostles are having. But instead, the disciples interrupt this brilliant thought by Jesus with questions of their own. And the distinct thing about these questions, there's three of them that we'll see. The, the, the interesting thing about these questions is that Jesus has already provided the answer for them. 
And we're not talking about, you know, in a different gospel. We're not saying, look for the answers to these questions in Mark or Matthew. No, Jesus has answered these questions in this very setting, in this very conversation. So the, the disciples with these questions are showing either their own insecurities or their, their lack of ability to listen. Maybe their short-term memory, which we all seem to be affected with today. To give you an example of one of these questions, the first one is offered up by Thomas. And he, right after Jesus finishes those four powerful verses that, that we just said, Thomas says, uh, how do we know the way to where you are going? And of course, if you were just listening, we see that Jesus provided the answer just two verses before when he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. So Thomas is asking a question that was just answered, and I think it says a lot about where Thomas is in his perspective and his perception of Christ and of God. You see, in, in Thomas's mind, there, there seems to be a lack of trust in Jesus. Though Jesus has, has given this profound promise, this reliable promise, Thomas is under the impression, like Mrs. Brown was in our fourth grade classroom, that we have to either earn our way to salvation or that we have to follow a certain literal road in order to get there. But I'm less concerned about what this says about Thomas, unless, of course, some of us out of a guilty conscience are nodding our heads and realizing that we have fallen victim to that same mistake. But I'm more concerned with what it says about Jesus. What does this statement, I will come again and receive you to myself, say about our Savior? See, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry and ultimately spanning back to the story of Israel and creation, God has had this desire to be with us. Manifested in, of course, Jesus' life on earth. And Jesus is so content at our presence with him that he goes and descends to heaven and is not satisfied until that presence, that link, is restored. You see, Jesus not only came to earth, but Jesus is coming back because he has a strong desire to fulfill the God with us story. Jesus is an embodiment of that, and Jesus is not content or satisfied until we are living in his presence. So the story goes on, and Jesus continues his sermon. Uh, In verse 6, he says the profound statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him. And have seen him. And Philip is the one to to break the chain again and ask the next question. And bless his heart, you know where this is going. He says, <laughs> he makes a request of Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus at this point says, Are you kidding me? He doesn't say that, but I mean you he must be thinking this. After spending, you know, three years with the disciples, after working on this earth thirty years towards this vision of of showing the world that him and the father are one and consistent after just repeating the very phrase philip interrupts him and asks him to show him the father and that's what will make him content so jesus of course has answered the question in verse 7 we see on our screen if you knew me you would have known my father you have already seen him in me see jesus is associating himself with a rich heritage of god He wants us to understand, the disciples to understand, that when we think about these beautiful stories in the Old Testament, they can't be separated from Jesus. When you think about God forming Adam and Eve out of the dirt, think of Jesus being there. When you think of of God parting the Red Sea through the rod of Moses, 
That was the same God that is among them now. And when you think about the God that, that shut the mouths of lions to keep Daniel safe, that is the same Jesus that we're talking about. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just associate himself with a past and present of God because that for the disciples would mean that they have no hope for the future. Later on in the chapter, he says, uh, in verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. So here Jesus is associating himself with a past, present, and future of God. In John chapter 14, later on, Jesus says, The very words I am speaking come from God. And then he says, the Holy Spirit will serve to remind you of the things that I've already said. And we're quickly noticing a trend. There is one current running through the story of God. So to answer our initial question, is God inconsistent? The clear and inevitable answer is no. God is unchanging. God is forever. God is eternal. And in the process, God is unchanging. So Jesus continues his story, and he, or his sermon, I'm sorry. He, he continues to talk about the need for prayer and the promise of the Holy Spirit. And, and finally, there is one final question, which I believe has the most significance for us today, the, the most powerful implications and relevance in our own life and context. Uh, it's asked by Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the one who will betray him, but uh, who scholars refer to as the other Judas, another member of the Twelve. Um, after Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be in you, um, in verse 17 it says, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. So Judas interprets this as an exclusive gospel, and he asks Jesus, Why would you only want to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So Judas is concerned that Christ has a very limited scope of the gospel. He's, he's concerned that Jesus only wants to manifest himself through the Holy Spirit to a select group of individuals. And Jesus' technique of understanding here is profound. He doesn't answer the question directly, but the implications are there, and they're very prominent. If we look back to verse 17, it says, Ungodly people may not be able to see me, uh, but they can see you. And if we are filled with the Holy Spirit today, then ultimately, if we follow that path all the way around, when people look at you, they are seeing God. You see, it's a profound that we live in a world that is so tainted by sin, that is so full of individuals who are selfishly pursuing their own vain conceits. They're not concerned about God. They're not concerned about the things of the kingdom of heaven. And it is only by our example in this life that they see who God is. You see, throughout the story of God with us, he has always been, been using different agents to reach different people. In the story of the Old Testament, he speaks directly through prophets which portray his message to the people of Israel. And then you see Jesus, Jesus at the turn of the century incorporating the God with us story, and then he promises the Holy Spirit. But there is something profound about this, and the story is not over. For those in the world who cannot see God because they do not seek him, you and I become the next bridge, the next avenue to which God speaks to the world in. You see, if Christ is speaking through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is speaking and living through us, then even the most ungodly people are getting a chance to understand and perceive who this God is. 
In John chapter 14, Jesus says, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these. And in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You are the light of the world. We are God's footprint in this world. And what does that mean? will take us to our key verse today. It reads, A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will live also. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So many times as Mrs. Brown, we view, or I'm sorry, as Steve Brown, we view the, the, the commandments of God as something that's negative, as something that's required, as something that is legalistic. But ultimately, the things that God desires and that God ultimately requests of us are just things that will draw the world to him. In Micah 6, verse 8, the beautiful verse says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but that you seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You see, we are the link, we are the bridge between God and the people that would otherwise not see him. And what does this mean in a practical way? I'm not trying to say that I have, have nailed down all of the, the possible meanings of morality, but what I do know is this. Christ has assured us that his presence is living with us upon our request in the Holy Spirit, and we have access, as it says in Matthew chapter 5, to that same power of God. So what I want to leave you with today is, is a suggestion, and it's something that I've started to incorporate in my own life and has, has started to, to man, manifest itself in a powerful way. I begin to, to start my days by, by making a request of God and saying, God, today I want your spirit to live in me in an intentional way, not in some, you know, not in a, a, a very, you know, a way that cannot be perceived. I want to feel the presence of God in a powerful way that actually gives my life direction. So what I've asked of God and what he has fulfilled actually 100% of the time that I've asked him is for him to remind me of the times that I am about to slip up. For him to to remind me of the times that I am about to bring an injustice to his name for someone that doesn't know him and embody instead the consistency of God. I'll give you an example of this, a practical example. I prayed this prayer two weeks ago uh, on a Sunday. A Sunday is a very busy day for me. I work, I open uh, a Jamba Juice in Corona, and it's, uh, it's by far our busiest day of the week. Uh, to give you an idea, we have lines out the door, uh, and people are often waiting 16 and 17 minutes for a smoothie that they ordered, you know, a while ago. So, it's, it's clear that they get impatient and they blame me because I'm the person in charge of the two people working. And one of these specific days, um, I, had, I had made a prepared a smoothie and handed it out, called it out for a girl, and, and she came over and she started yelling, verbally assaulting me, if you will, for, for the fact that the smoothie was you know, two inches short of the top of the cup. And, and my natural inclination um, in that situation I'm sure as many of us would do, is to, uh, you know, approach it in a combative way, to, to be either, you know, condescending or, or to argue with the woman about how, you know, you know, Jamba just guarantees that it's that line, it should be completely satisfactorial. But I looked at her and I understood, and God, literally, God reminded me 
He said, you are embodying me right now. You're representing me. What if this girl doesn't know me and you are the only avenue to which she will understand me? So at that point, <laughs> I was like, wow, taken back. A genuine smile came across my face and said, let me fix this for you. And I gave her a free size up and she left that place with a smile on her face. If only for a second, understanding that the kingdom of God is alive and well in this world and in those who choose to make it real in their lives. So what I ask of all of us this morning um, is, is to make that intentional in our lives this week. Ask God, and I guarantee he will surprise you in the ways that he manifests himself in your life and the ways that he reminds you to be consistent for him. Because in following his precepts and following this seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God format, the, the infectious personality of God is brought out. You see, when we follow who God wants us to follow in Him, the world can't help but see the attractive characteristics of God, His love, His compassion, His mercy, His truth, His never-ending ability and desire to make Himself known in our world. And God has chosen us to be that agent in this life. So it is my prayer and, and my request this morning that we would all be intentional about pursuing the consistency, embodying the, the movement that is our God, because that truly is our contributions to the portrait of God in this world.